I started this series with an illustration of standing on a sand dune and having that ground fall away from you. So we thought we'd end this series by coming down to the beach and hanging out a little bit with the water where you would find sand. Sometimes the shifting sand makes it feel like we can't gain any ground. And my hope is that through this series, one of the things that you found is that you can gain ground. But perhaps gaining ground is not really about the sands that are shifting underneath your feet. Maybe it's not about sure footing, but rather it's about the rope that you're holding on to. Now, I understand that that seems a little weird, right? I don't mean to mix metaphors, but the sand I'm standing on right now is always going to shift. Gaining ground is not always about sure footing. Sometimes it's about the rope you hold on to. Have you seen the meme about quicksand? It says growing up, I always thought that quicksand was going to be a much bigger problem than it actually turned out to be. But did you ever notice in those old cartoons that we watched when we were little, that somehow impossibly there would be quicksand. And of course there would be a rope as well that you could grab onto. So where did that vine or rope come from? Where was the branch that sort of just showed up? It seemed impossible at the time, but truly it was always there just at the right moment. While the shifting sand we're in may feel like quicksand, we know that there's always a rope that's gonna help us gain ground. And this series has shown us that that rope is Jesus. And I have to say, when I was growing up, I had this, this in television. Do you guys remember that? In television, now all my other friends had, had the cool gaming consoles, but I didn't have, they had the Atari. My dad decided we were gonna get in television. He was always one of those guys that didn't go with what everybody wanted. He wanted to get his own thing. And we had this game, I think it was called Jungle Rally, or so, I can't remember what it was called, but it was about this guy running through the jungle and there was always quicksand. And the only way you could get out of the quicksand was the rope. And since this series has shown us that even if the ground is shifting, we know that there's a rope in Jesus, we understand this, that this series has shown us one thing, that Jesus wins. And you know, in this win, it's complete. This victory, it's not a tie that was sort of sorted out by a field goal at the last minute or a last minute kick on goal. It was the super conquering and the conquest of Jesus in this world. In fact, Paul states in another one of his texts in Romans, he says that Jesus was more than a conqueror and therefore we could be more than conquerors or super conquerors as well. There's nothing that Jesus hasn't won. And we came out to the beach today because I'm reminded that there is nothing better than catching a wave. You know, it doesn't have to be a big wave, a great wave, or even a wave that you can do all that much on. In fact, today, ankle slappers, two to three feet. But there's something about standing on that surfboard that makes you feel a little invincible. You know, honestly, it's probably because you've fallen down so much, but that by the time you stand up, it is truly an achievement. I remember when I first got a GoPro and I couldn't wait to lash it to my surfboard and see how cool I looked surfing. I knew it was gonna be great. So the day I went out, it was stormy. In fact, it was before a one project that we had in San Diego. I ran up to Ocean Beach, but then I went a little bit further north than that. I found a spot that I thought would be great. And the entry, you know, to get in wasn't too bad either. So 
I began to swim. I, I, I swam for about 45 minutes just trying to get out. And, and I videotaped the whole thing. It was just me getting beat up on my board. Then finally, when I made it out and rested a little bit, I tried to catch a wave or two. They were, they were terrible. I was just going over the falls, getting trounced, basically making a fool of myself, all on film. Now, unfortunately, that footage has been completely lost, so you'll never get a chance to see it. But then, after a pretty long session of failure, I stood up, and it was a short ride, maybe eight seconds, 10 seconds, if even that. I immediately paddled in, I went to my car, I had my computer there, so I opened up the camera, downloaded the footage, and it was amazingly bad. It was horrible. But you know, those just, those 10 seconds, those felt phenomenal. I didn't do anything on the wave. I stood up, I went straight. But I did, I felt like Alexander the Great conquering the East. I felt like Genghis Khan as I moved beyond the Eurasian steppes into the into Asia proper, I had conquered. And I get it, it's ridiculous. But it's also the way you feel when you conquer even a small way. So we have learned something. We've learned that while Jesus was a savior, the word that we often use for them, we could also use the word conqueror because that is what he did. Just as effectively as saving us, he conquered sin, he conquered death. But we still have a text to deal with. We're not quite done with 2 Thessalonians. So we're gonna jump into it because 2 Thessalonians has a beginning, it has a middle. This is the man of lawlessness that we talked about yesterday and an end. So let's take a look at the end. We're taking a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter three. It begins with Paul's request for prayer. He says, finally, dear brothers and sisters, we ask you to pray for us. Pray that the Lord's message will be spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes just as when it came to you. This is quite an act of humility when you think about it. Rather than continuing with his teaching, he engages them to be a support for him and his people. And what is at the top of his prayer list? And I love this. At the top of his prayer list is that the gospel or the Lord's message, he said, would be spread far and wide. In his book, The Lost History of Christianity, John Philip Jenkins states this, Christianity, that was described as mysterious, wonderful, spontaneous, producing perception, establishing essentials for the salvation of creatures and the benefit of man. This was the Jingzhao, or the luminous teaching. And by the way, this is from China. That's where Christianity went. Christianity had gone far and wide. The message of Jesus did transcend culture and language and adversity. What Paul was asking them to pray for happened. It took centuries, but you know what? It continues today. So then he continues in verse two. He says, pray too that we'll be rescued from wicked and evil people for not everyone is a believer. Now it sounds like there's a binary Paul's living in and he kind of is because you got to remember that the Thessalonians were dealing with persecution. And of course, so was Paul. And certainly in that binary of Paul's vision, those who did not believe wished him harm. This is not always the case, but it was for a man who when not a believer, did much to cause harm to Christianity. That was Paul. Verse three, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. So 
Paul asks for prayer for rescue, while at the same time letting them know that God is already there, making sure that they will have strength and be safe from the evil one. Paul always brings it back. I've been a broken record in this series, and you know that. Verse 4, and we are confident in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things commanded you. Now, this is a great affirmation of their faithfulness and Paul's anticipation of their faithfulness moving forward. Permit me a moment to muse here, if I can. We haven't met together for the last three months, almost. So it's like we have been away from one another. But I think I can honestly say that if I were writing to you, I would be able to say that I am confident in Christ that you are doing and will continue to seek God with all your hearts. I have a great deal of faith in you. But know that my faith fails in comparison to God's faith in you. Well, I hate not worshiping with you, and I miss you all horribly. To think that you would only be faithful in a building would be to vastly underestimate what you think of God and what God thinks of you. If we were to lose our Christianity and obedience to God because we can't go to a building, we would have to ask ourselves if we were ever Christians outside of the building anyway. Now, I get it, that's an oversimplification of things. Of course it is. But I want you to understand something. Paul had faith in those he taught. Of course, he could correct them. And we've seen that a little bit in Thessalonians. But he knew that the teaching he had given them was the message of God. It was the gospel. And he knew, he knew that the gospel was a thing that would continue to feed them, to build their obedience, and would calm them in the storm they were going through. In the same way, I am confident in what we have taught you over the years. What we have taught you over the years continues to be the gospel. When I came back into ministry, that was my goal, to preach the gospel in season, out of season, in the building, apparently, outside of the building as well. And we have stuck true to that, and we have seen the church grow. Now, the church hasn't grown because we're great at what we do, even though I've hired incredible people and the team at Crosswalk is amazing. The reason it has continued to grow is that the gospel is the thing that continues to feed us. It continues to grow us. And it will do that whether we're in the building or not in the building. So thank you for your patience. I can't wait to worship with you, but we will do it when the time is appropriate. Now, I want to jump back into the text. Verse 5 in 2 Thessalonians 3 says this, May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. And, and I got to tell you, this is, this is a good one. We need to dig into this just a little bit more if we can. Because it says this, May the Lord lead your hearts into a full understanding and expression of the love of God. Now, what is a full understanding and expression of the love of God? What in the world does this mean? It means that a greater understanding of God comes from the leading of the Lord. Again, everything comes from God. But it also means that to fully express His love into the world, will take a while. This is patient endurance. And that will come from God as well. We sometimes think that full understanding and expression of the love of God might be a clearer doctrine of God or better words for who God is in the world. And all that's certainly true. But it seems that Paul says 
the idea of a fuller understanding and a fuller expression go together, if that's the case, then the more we understand God, the better our expression of love in the world will be. It's not that we know more, it's that we do more. What we have here is a cause and effect, a root and a fruit issue. When the root is good, the fruit is sweet. When the root is rotten, so is the fruit. If you're not sure if you know God or understand Him, begin to look at the fruit that is growing in your life. Right? If everyone around you is getting sick of you, if everyone around you is exhausted because you're so negative all the time, maybe there's something wrong with the root. You see, that fruit is the expression of God in the world and you cannot disconnect those things. So what sort of fruit are you growing in your life? And it's a great indicator of who you know God to be. So what you see incarnating through you comes directly from your understanding of God. Now then, Paul moves into a quick exhortation of proper living in the next text. And for Paul, proper living has everything to do with not being idle. And people were doing that because they were thinking that the end of the world was coming or because they thought that the day of the Lord was coming so they didn't have to work hard anymore. Paul had dissuaded them of this thinking, but they seemed to fall back into it. He wanted to emphasize the fact that they should not be idle. Now, I'm actually not gonna read verses six through 12. You can go do that on your own. And the study guide takes a good many days to get through these sections. What I wanna do is I want to land on verse 13. And verse 13 starts like this. As for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters. Now, this is interesting because he says, as for the rest of you, dear brothers and sisters, never get tired of doing good. I love this. But when he's talking about the rest of you, he's not talking about those of you who are idle. He's talking about those of you who are continuing to do the work. He says, never get tired of doing good. Now, why would they get tired of doing good? Because there's such a thing. There's such a thing as compassion fatigue. There's such a thing as working so hard that you finally, you kind of end up getting tired and getting not sick of helping people. That's not right. But we get exhausted. Paul makes this positive statement with a really great word. And it's super long and it's Greek. So I'm just going to ask you to trust me. It is a word that is not used anywhere else in the New Testament or in any of Paul's writing. It means to do good to others by becoming a benefactor to them. Benefaction is taking on someone else's interests. You become a source of hope and good in their lives, and you fill in some of the gaps when you can. So personally, he is asking them to continue to do these works of kindness, grace, and compassion. They were tangible works. And interestingly, he juxtaposes this with those who are idle. He says that he doesn't want the people to stop doing good works. He doesn't want them to stop being great benefactors, although there were some who were doing nothing. I think Paul puts this together because he knows that doing good, especially in benefaction, right, is never easy. And he also knows that the idol won't get it done. He says this in the positive because he is wanting to make sure they hear it with the right spirit. It's easy to be negative. And he actually goes there. 
after being positive, he goes to the negative a little bit and he pushes a little bit harder on them. He says, take note of those who refuse to obey what we say in this letter. Stay away from them so they will be ashamed. Now, this isn't language that makes a lot of sense to us. It sounds bad, but the truth is it's actually redemptive. Now, you're gonna have to stay with me so you can understand how this is redemptive. You see, they were to make note of the people who were not doing good, who were idle, and they were to stay away from them, to disassociate with them, but not to vilify them. Now, now we're, we're not the Amish, right? We don't shun people. When you shun someone, you don't have anything to do with them. That's not what Paul was saying. What Paul was saying was, make sure that they're not making your name bad. And the next verse kind of continues this thought. He says, don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or a sister. Now, listen, I know it seems like a bit of a mixed message, right? But it really, it really isn't. You see, there's no punishment. There's no insult. There's simply a calm separation and then a warning. It's actually pretty reasonable because if people acted like this in church more, things might get a great deal better in church if we decided to take a beat and then give wisdom. I mean, have you ever been corrected? Did you know it was coming? I, I've done things wrong in my life, right? I've done things wrong in my work and I have sensed people actually stepping away from me, giving me space for a moment to realize my mistake. And, I, and while it bothered me at first, it began, I began to appreciate it. When I haven't realized the mistake, finally someone who really cared for me reached out and gave me not so much a warning, but a reasonable criticism. And I actually appreciated it. It took a while sometimes, but it helped me gain back the ground that I had lost by the poor decisions that I have made. And by the way, that bit of separation helped me and it helped them. I needed it to soften my heart and they needed it to soften their anger at my mistake. It worked for both of us in a really positive manner. So Paul is not saying something negative here. Paul is actually saying something very positive. Give them a moment so that their reputation doesn't tarnish your reputation and then go and speak to them and, and correct them. Move them in the right direction, but speak to them as you would a family member. And maybe that's a bad illustration, but think, talk to them as you would hope a family member would talk to you. In verse 16, he wraps it up like this. He says, now may the Lord of his peace, Lord of peace himself give you his peace at all times and in every situation, the Lord be with you all. So he decides he's gonna end this positively, right? And, and Paul had a tendency to do this, to end this on a positive note because Paul knows that the last words that you hear from someone are the words that you have a tendency to, to keep with you too often. It's not really his famous last words, but it's, it's something like that. You see, I was at a funeral of a, a coach of mine, a man who died much too early, Coach Richard Hamilton, and some of you may have known him. And I've used this illustration before, but it was so powerful to me because what the pastor did when he was preaching his sermon at the funeral is he went to Coach Hamilton's last five emails. And in his last five emails, every single Every single email ended with an encouraging word. And this is what Paul has done. Paul has encouraged people at the very end. When, when they read those emails at Coach Hamilton's funeral, I, 
I was broken. I was in tears because that's the last memory I had of Coach, him telling me how great I was, how much I could do for God, and how much he wanted to encourage me. It was really pretty incredible. And then Paul does something cool. He says, here's my greeting in my own handwriting. Paul, I do this letters, do this in all my letters to prove that they are from me. Now, what's interesting is that when you look at it in your Bible, it may be in all caps. And the reason why is because it was a different handwriting and we kept that from, um, that, that was part of the translation. It's always been there. That's really cool, actually. And the reason why is because everyone wanted to understand Paul actually is gonna write this. He didn't write the whole thing. He had a scribe to do it. But for this, he's gonna write his name, Paul. And one of the reasons he was doing that is because he wanted them to check their source. He wanted them to verify that this was a letter from him. So he says, check your sources. Paul is going to verify to them that it is from him. He doesn't want them to be confused as not being able to verify where things come from can often cause confusion. Good and solid content is clearly sourced. You should know that. If you have a hard time finding where things come from, you better watch your sources. But I wonder, what do you want your last words to be? Because, you know, somebody will probably, someone will probably record them. There's a few famous ones that we might want to mention. Joseph Wright, who was a linguist who edited, edited the English dialect dictionary. You know what his last word was? Dictionary. The Italian artist Raphael's last words were simply happy. Composer Gustav Mahler died in bed conducting an imaginary orchestra, and his last word was Mozart. Blues singer Bessie Smith died saying, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. Composer Jean-Philippe Rameau objected to a song sung at his bedside. He said, what the devil do you mean to sing to me, priest? You are out of tune. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, he died at the age of 71 in his garden. He turned to his wife and he said, you are wonderful, then clutched his chest and died. Writer T.S. Eliot was only able to whisper one word as he died, Valerie, the name of his wife. In verse 18, he says, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. These are his last words to the Thessalonians, a gift of grace. I don't know what your last words are gonna be, but when it came to his exposition on the end of time, Paul didn't leave them with a, be careful, things are gonna get bad, it's gonna get horrible. He didn't leave them with a, are you ready? Have you gotten all your ducks in a row? Are you sure that everything's gonna work out? And he didn't leave them with, don't trust anyone. There's a devil behind every single rock and stone. Rather, Paul left them with a strong and powerful gift of grace, a gift that no one can deny. He asked that the grace of Jesus be with them. He also, by the way, didn't delineate between the ones who were doing it right and the ones who were not doing it right at all. He just gave grace to all of them. Paul was just like that. He wanted to leave people with hope and with grace, with comfort and with strength. And he knew that those things were available because those things came from God. Is that what you're wanting to leave those around you with even today? Are you wanting them to have a sense of peace, a gift of grace and a hope for tomorrow? 
listen, we're beginning to see things open up. So it feels like maybe, maybe the end of time didn't come. Listen, I have to tell you that some have pushed back on the fact that I want all connected with Crosswalk to be sources of light in the world. They have said that by being hope, by posting and saying uplifting things, that we're not interested in dealing with the ills of society that need to be called out. I couldn't disagree more. By, by bringing hope into the world, by giving the gift of grace, we are building up an opportunity to speak hard things into the world as well. Things are not perfect. We know that. Of course they aren't. We need to not to pretend that they are. However, after all of the end time and eschatological anxiety, the processing, the antichrist, Paul wants them to have hope. I want you to have hope. We want to be hope givers in the world. We don't shy away from hard conversations. We don't pretend that there is not so much that needs to be fixed in the world, but we also don't leave people in the rubble. We have to help rebuild. We have to give them hope and grace. We don't do that by dividing. We do that by encouraging, by bringing together, and by earning the right to speak into the lives of those around us. Now today, I'm at the beach. After this, I'm going to go surfing, even though there's very little surf. You've heard the, the boats and you've heard the, the birds and you recognize the fact that this too shall pass. Things are opening up. We're taking deeper breaths. We're not out of the woods yet. And we wanna make sure that we're careful, that we're compliant, and that we're taking care of the most vulnerable of our family in our congregation. But I want you to know this, hope has always been there, even in the darkest nights. None of us thought we'd be doing this for this long, but even in the darkest night, even when you were most afraid and most scared of what was going on, Jesus has been there the whole time. Remember, hope is not seeing light at the end of the tunnel, even though we're beginning to do that. Hope is knowing that there is light at the end of the tunnel because that's where Jesus is and he's with us right now as well. So Crosswalk Church, I hope we've gained some ground over the last few weeks. We're moving into a new series called Faith by Design. I think it's gonna be phenomenal. And next week, we're gonna have Pastor Simon Lenore preach to us in the kind of interim week in between the two, two different series. But this is what I wanna leave you with. May the grace of God, may his hope, may his peace, may his strength, May it all be with you, not through this week, not through just the dark times, the times that feel like they might be the end times, but all the time. Because we are children of light and we are children of grace. And that grace has been given to us to continue to give to other people as well. And if we don't do that, inside the building, outside the building, it doesn't really matter. If we don't do that, are we really the witness that God has called us to? Thank you for hanging in there. Thank you for reorganizing your families. Thank you for reorganizing your time. And thank you for being faithful because you have been and you will continue to be. Because the words that we taught you continue to be the gospel and that's what's gonna feed you and carry you through. Let's pray. God of grace, Heavenly Father, you are, you are the reason that we can make it through. So Lord, carry us, give us that strength, hope, compassion, mercy, all those things that we need. 
and continue to grow us in this time apart. As you regenerate your church through small groups, Lord, we ask that you regenerate our hearts to be focused more on you. In your name I pray, Lord. Amen.